once you're at the Supreme Court of Canada, winning for your client also becomes bound up with the issue uh, that you've told the court is is important um, as a public matter. And so once we were there, it was really not just about winning for Mr. Pinti, it was about winning on, on the self-represented litigant issue, the, the treatment of, of SRLs uh, that we, we brought forward. Hello and welcome to another edition of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall. I'm the project coordinator for the National Self-Represented Litigants Project at the University of Windsor Law School. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And today's episode is entitled Insiders and Outsiders, and I think that's a really great title. And we are talking, or Julie is talking today with Colin Feesby. Right, and as uh, people may remember, Insiders and Outsiders was actually part of Colin's opening line as he presented the arguments in the Pintea and Johns case involving a self-represented litigant to uh, the Supreme Court of Canada. And what he actually said was, this case is about insiders and outsiders. A very memorable and important line for how the argument was then framed about the ways in which self-represented litigants are treated as outsiders in the justice system and the unfairnesses that that can lead to. So to give you a little bit more background on Colin, Colin Feesby is a partner in the Calgary office of Ozil Hoskin Harcourt, where, interestingly, his practice is primarily in commercial litigation. Uh, we've already talked with uh, Ranjan Agarwal about his practice and his work on this issue, also someone who works in commercial litigation. And both of these individuals are people who see their responsibility, I think, towards what's happening in the courts with self-represented litigants much more broadly than their own particular practice area because, as Colin says frankly in this conversation, he doesn't often come across self-reps in the work that he does. However, Colin was the pro bono lawyer who brought the leave to appeal that was granted in the Pintia case and then the arguments to the Supreme Court of Canada. And this was the very first time a case had been heard by our highest court on how self-represented litigants are treated in the justice system. So hugely important. Colin was given very long odds by colleagues that he would actually get leave in this case. Um, but he still felt that it was an example of injustice that really needed to be considered by the Supreme Court. And it was a national issue that needed to be considered by the court. So when to his and our perhaps surprise but great delight, leave was granted in October of 2016, work could begin in earnest on that appeal. And the story, as some listeners may know, ended in a successful outcome for Colin's client. Um, this was a hitherto unrepresented elderly disabled man, an immigrant whose first language was not English, who had been bringing his own case forward because he couldn't afford a lawyer, and he missed two case management meetings. Um, he said that the notice for them had been sent to his old address, and as a result of missing those meetings, he was found in contempt and he was fined $83,000, which seemed excessive and punitive. 
So when the court decided uh, earlier this year that they agreed with Collins' arguments, they released him from the contempt order and they released Mr. Pintier from the fine that had been imposed upon him. But the court did something else as well that we talk about in this conversation, which is that they signaled that judges should start to take more note of how SRLs in their class, in their courtrooms understand the proceedings, that they need to be able to understand sufficiently to enable them to effectively participate. And in particular, they endorsed the Canadian Judicial Council guidelines for working with self-represented litigants, which gives some somewhat generic but nonetheless practical and useful guidelines to judges of how far they can go in assisting people without representation in ensuring that they understand and can be effective in the proceedings. So I wanted to ask Colin what had motivated him in the first place as a commercial litigator to offer his pro bono services in this important case about self-representation and also what impact he anticipated this decision was going to have in the future as the lower courts now apply it. And I reached him in his office in Calgary. Hello, Colin. It's Julie McFarlane calling. How are you? Hi, Julie. I'm doing great. Yourself? Good. Yeah, really well. Really well. Thanks for taking the time today to talk about this because um, I think there are a lot of people who are listening who are very interested in learning a little bit more about this case that you worked on, Kintair uh, and John. So uh, I'm hoping that I can, you know, get a little bit more out of you about how all this happened and how you understand the case and what it might mean, because certainly there are lots of people who are self-representing who uh, who were very excited to see this decision. So just to kind of get back to the beginning, um, I remember vividly uh, the moment that I got an email from you in the summer of last year, 2016, uh, telling me that uh, you were applying for leave to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada on behalf of an SRL. And, uh, you know, we didn't know each other, of course, but um, I was just so thrilled to realize that at least one other person had been following some of the really troubling decisions that we had seen being made in some of the cases involving SRLs and what was more you wanted to work on it pro bono and take it to the Supreme Court of Canada. So uh, that was uh, that was a pretty exciting moment. Um, but what I don't really know, Colin, we've never really talked about is, is how you became interested in this issue. And I think people would be interested in knowing as well what your process was for looking out for a suitable case to try to get leave to appeal on. Sure. Well, I, I have to confess that the plight of self-represented litigants has not been something that I've spent a lot of time in my career thinking about. It, right. uh, unlike yourself, it, it, it was not sort of a passion that drove me. Well, it wasn't um, part of your practice, really, I guess. Exactly. I'm a, I'm a commercial litigator uh, by trade, so it's not Which something Which makes it even more interesting. That you got involved in this, so <laughs> yes, not not something I deal with normally, but um, you know, as part of my practice, I like to keep track of the cases coming out of the Alberta courts because I practice in Calgary, and uh, I saw a decision come out of the Alberta Court of Appeal, the Pinte case, and um, I was struck because 
there was a, a dissent in this case, and um, the dissent was by a justice who, who I have a lot of respect for, Justice uh, Peter Martin, mm-hmm. and he he put uh, the plight of this litigant in very stark terms, and he said essentially that he um, was uh, an immigrant who uh, was disabled, and he said that his claim was, in his view, meritorious, and yet because of um, the procedural circumstances, uh, he'd ended up with his claim being dismissed and being saddled with a a very large bill of costs. And he thought it was unjust, and as I read it, I felt exactly the same way, and Mm. and, uh, for whatever reason, uh, it motivated me to... uh, to uh, reach out to Mr. Pentea and um, see if we could we could help him uh, uh, maybe fix this problem. So what's really interesting to me about this, Colin, is that you're kind of operating in another world most of the time in your own practice, um, as you say, as a commercial litigator. And I'm sure you occasionally, but probably not all that often, come across self-represented litigants in that area. So you were really kind of plunging into a whole new area here. Um, Could you say a bit more about what concerns you about the case and how you were hoping the appeal might take that, um, might address those issues? A bunch of things in there to tackle. Say, First of all, you know, I was a neophyte in terms of uh, self-represented litigant issues. I mean, as 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 you suspect, I, I have dealt with self-represented litigants from time to time in my corporate practice, commercial practice, mm. and um, you know. But not regularly, I'm sure. Not regularly. So when I jumped into this, I was a neophyte, and very quickly I sort of learned that there were people like yourself um, who have made it their life's work um, to try and make the system better for self-represented litigants. So big learning curve in terms of of the subject matter, and uh, you know, I, I think it changed my perspective on, on a lot of things. But litigators, as you probably know, um, and, and maybe it's a kind of arrogance, we sort of believe that we can argue anything. <laughs> and, and so, you know, it's like studying for an exam. You you learn it you learn it and then uh, right. you, you you put together the argument and then, then you go and argue it. And uh, so Well that, you happen to be right in that in this case though, that you were able to do that. So, yeah. so just just want to go back to one thing you just said, Colin, about how it changed your perspective on many things. I mean, there were obviously, you know, let's say, um, you know, in Justice Martin's dissent, there were some obvious issues of injustice being raised here um, that sort of attracted your attention, I guess, um, for, want, for want of a better way of describing it. Um, but you just said that doing this work you know, sort of plunging in as a neophyte change some of your perspectives. Can you can you elaborate a bit on that? Sure. Well, I, I don't think I fully appreciated in the first instance how many self-represented litigants there are out there. Mm. Uh, because as I said, it's not something I ran into my practice, but as I learned, it, it's a very, very common feature in many other practices, certainly in the criminal law, in the family law area, um, even um, to and in civil too. Yeah, sure, certainly in smaller civil disputes. Yes, um, very, very common. And so that that was a bit of an eye opener to me in terms of the scale of the issue. And then certainly once you start to appreciate the scale and you realize that there are this many people who are 
relatively unsophisticated in how mm. the court system works, and, and the court system is, um, so I think most normal people, fairly Byzantine. Um, so I, I do have an appreciation for all sides of the issue. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a perfect storm, really, isn't it? Yeah. So in this case, Mr. Pintia was fairly vulnerable in many ways. He was elderly. Um, as you say, he was an immigrant. I'm not sure he, you know, English was not his first language. Um, he had a disability. So he, I suppose, represented, um, you know, one type of self-represented litigant that's certainly out there. Um, but of course, there are lots of self-represented litigants who are uh, highly educated, able to stand up and speak, have, you know, some confidence and and, and facility um, in doing that, but they still feel overwhelmed as well. So, you know, I'm just interested in whether you think that this was, you know, the quote-unquote right plaintiff here for this appeal or whether you see this as something that has a kind of broader application outside Mr. Pintier's circumstances. Well, as I've been thinking about this, I've come to realize that there are a number of different kinds of self-represented litigants, mm. and there may be no one perfect representative for all of them. Uh, yes, yeah. yeah, I think Mr. that's a very important point here, yes. Yeah. Mr. Pinty has certainly represented a certain kind of self-represented litigant. Mm. Um, you know, there are there is this group of people who maybe don't have, whether it's the language skills or... Uh, the education or what have you to to navigate the court system, and that's a certain kind of self-represented litigant. And then, as you said, there's certainly self-represented self-represented litigants who are very articulate, uh, educated, and advanced, sophisticated, well put together arguments. I mean, they're a different yeah. sort of of litigant. Uh, and and then the last kind of self-represented litigant are, are the kind that you see sometimes talked about in the newspapers or even um, the judgments, the, the type of people like the, the freemen on the land who are, um, you know, reject the authority of the courts and reject the the, the use of lawyers and they, they actively adopt stra- strategies to try and um, thwart the work of the courts. So, yeah. I mean, that's a whole other category. And, and the problem is I think a lot of these different self-represented litigants get lumped into the same bucket when we're talking about them. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, um, you know, the, the last group you identified, we certainly know that they are, in particular, um, in the Alberta courts, but there's still a, a tiny fraction of the ordinary guys out there trying to figure out uh, what to do. So, but but they attract a disproportionate amount of commentary and attention, I think. They do. They absolutely do. I mean, we, we sometimes talk about them as, you know, the celebrity SRLs because, of course, if you're writing newspaper copy, they're much more exciting to write about than the vast majority of people who are just struggling. And certainly when leave to appeal was granted, um, made us very excited about, about what would happen next. So, you know, we, uh, as you know... Um, we came from Windsor. I came with my research assistants um, to Ottawa that day to the Supreme Court of Canada. I have to say it was probably one of my favorite ever field trips. We were so excited. Um, <laughs> and we sat at the back of the Supreme Court of Canada as, as you presented your arguments and then were uh, grilled, I think it's probably fair to say, by all nine judges. Um, 
Can you say a little bit about, you mentioned earlier this was, you know, a new area for you, but you were plunging in with the confidence of the litigator that you could make an argument. Um, what was the part of this that you feel the most proud of in terms of the way that you conducted this and presented the argument and maybe, you know, re- responded to some of the questions from the judges? Um <laughs> Uh, that's, a, that's a tough question. I mean, it's certainly a fun day, and it's always fun to stand in front of a court, especially a court as full of people who are as, as smart and, and distinguished as, as the Supreme Court of Canada. Yeah. I mean, it's a real highlight. Doesn't get much lawyer. better. Yep. That, that's right. And 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 they test you uh, and they push you, and um, you you do your best to answer the questions and maintain your composure and mm. not get thrown off message because of course you have a plan when you go in to, to speak to the court and you want to get through the process right. you want to get through but the nine judges may push you in a, a number of different directions and ask you a bunch of questions and it's very mm. difficult to keep the message consistent and keep going so I was pleased that I was able to to do that to get through everything I wanted to get through in the time that we had um, I didn't feel that they were particularly hard on me, but that maybe I'm just used, <laughs> used to courts being hard on me. So. Right, right. Well, I, 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 I think that any situation in which you have nine smart people who might interrupt you at any moment is going to be quite taxing. Uh, so, you know, in, just on that level, I think that uh, it's pretty phenomenal that uh, you, you managed to get through what you needed to get through, even with some of the uh, extra pushing around whether or not the court really had or had not been fair to your client. And then, of course, what happened, which I don't think you were expecting, we certainly were not expecting, was that the judges retired and said that they would come back and render a decision rather than everybody leaving and then we wait for the decision, the written decision to come out. So I think we had about 20 minutes where we all stood around in the courtroom and said, oh gosh, oh gosh, what's going to happen? And then, of course, the the judgment was then delivered orally. And that judgment relieved your client of the burden of the contempt finding. It relieved your client of the $83,000 penalty he'd been ordered to pay, which as his lawyer, I'm sure must have been your primary goal, Colin. I mean, we talked about this a little bit during the preparation stages. That was your primary goal. But there was also an interest here, and this is what we as an intervener and uh, pro bono um, Access BC in Ontario, what we argued in our intervener comments that were presented separately was that there could be a better way of thinking about how judges offer assistance to self-represented litigants because Mr. Kintier was not offered any assistance and was clearly at many times confused about the process in addition to missing the various case management meetings that he missed. So that oral judgment did make a couple of remarks about judicial assistance to SRLs, but it didn't address it in any detail. So... What do you think is the most important outcome here? Sure. So so let me tackle a couple of things. Obviously, the first thing we were trying to do was win for our client. Yes. But when you're in front of the Supreme Court of Canada, the only way you get there is by showing the issue that your client has as one of, of public or national importance. Yes. 
And so once you're at the Supreme Court of Canada, winning for your client also becomes bound up with the issue uh, that you've told the court is is important um, as a public matter. And so once we were there, it was really not just about winning for Mr. Pintia, it was about winning on, on the self-represented litigant issue, the, the treatment of, of SRLs uh, that we, we brought forward. So it, it, in some ways, um, the, the goals or objectives merged when, mm. you're, when you're in that court. But what, what I would say about the decision is um, the court endorsed uh, the Canadian Judicial Council's uh, yes. statement of principles on, on uh, self-represented litigants. And I think that's a very important and meaningful thing that the court has done. It's taken what is a, a guideline, a policy guideline issued by the Canadian Judicial Council and effectively given it the force of law by endorsing yes. it in a Supreme Court of Canada judgment. So I think that's a very, very important thing. And time will tell. And uh, if, if that doesn't prove to be the case, then somebody in in the future will no doubt find find the right case to bring the matter back to them. Yeah, I think I agree with that interpretation. And I think the other thing I felt about it was it was this is a very new issue still. And it's a very complicated issue, trying to figure out what role judges should play in relation to self-represented litigants. And we're still just at the beginning of figuring out how to do that. And so in a way, I saw this, I mean, I was tremendously, tremendously encouraged and excited by the outcome and tremendously grateful to you and the other pro bono counsel who worked on this. But it was a safe decision to go to the Canadian Judicial Council's guidelines. And I suspect that there will be more. We're already seeing um, the Pintier case actually being referred to and applied um, in other courts now. But given the extent of the issues here, which are not just about how much should a judge offer an explanation to a self-rep or give them the benefit of the doubt on something they might have misunderstood, but also things like accommodations, um, cost awards, other kinds of procedural fairness issues. Do you, I know this isn't your area, but now you have kind of had a baptism of fire. <laughs> what, what do you think, you know, what strikes you is still left to be done above and beyond what is a somewhat generic statement, a good one, but a somewhat generic statement in the CJC guidelines? Yeah, the, the CJC statement, um, I would say it's really a balanced document in the sense that um, it both prescribes ways that judges and court officials should treat self-represented litigants and help mm -hmm. them in certain ways, but it also recognizes certain um, challenges that they pose, and yeah. it does um, suggest that there are expectations on the part of the self-represented litigants as well. So it's a balanced document, and I think we're going to find that different courts and different judges will find or place different emphasis on different parts of that document. Mm. And the risk, I think, is that we won't see a lot of consistency in how uh, courts um, are dealing with problems, so we may need mm. some more clarity there. But I think it's fair to say that directionally in making this endorsement and finding for Mr. Pintia, because the finding itself, 
um, does, I think, signal a certain perspective on the, on the matter in yes. reversing the Alberta Court of Appeal. I, I think directionally, the Supreme Court of Canada is saying that we have to do more for self-represented litigants than we are doing now. And I think it's very much in keeping with a number of the other cases that have come out of the Supreme Court in diverse areas. You know, for example, the Jordan case, which is talked about so much mm. today, we have to get people uh, trials within a reasonable amount yeah. of time. It, it's part of a, a larger message from the court that our lower courts have to serve the people better. Thank you, Colin. This has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you talking to me today. And again, thank you so much for bringing forward this really important case. And, and Julie, thank you for uh, all of your work. Um, you know, certainly uh, advancing Mr. Pintia's case wouldn't have been possible without all of the the research and and the publications that that uh, the National Self-Represented Litigants Project, uh, under your leadership, uh, uh, have have been putting together. Well, thank you. Take care now. Bye bye. One of the things that really struck me about what Colin had to say about his experience, his growing experience with the SRL phenomenon and sidebar, that was really interesting him talking about how he hadn't had much experience before Mm. and how much of an education he's gotten. And I really liked when he broke down kind of realizing that not our, not all SRLs are the same, that they, there's so many different types of people who are representing themselves. Of course, that's every group of people that's very diverse um and yet the issue is that they all tend to get lumped together into the same bucket Mm. as he put it Mm. and you talked about the freeman on the land as and i think that's kind of maybe the bucket that a lot of the time they get lumped into which is really unfortunate and as he says those are the people that get a disproportionate amount of attention when of course the vast majority of SRLs are just regular people who don't want to be there and are just trying to get through this. Yeah. And I think that it was such a good observation coming from someone in particular who doesn't really operate in a world ordinarily where there are a lot of SRLs, as he said, you know, one of the struggles that we've had at the project uh, is to try to convince the whole legal profession and not just those who would more naturally work regularly with SRLs in family court and the smaller civil cases, that this is their issue too. Not because it's exactly part of their practice, but because it affects the public regard for the legal system. And I think that Colin, you know, is a great example of someone who doesn't need to be worried about this, but he clearly and sincerely is. Mm-hmm. Right. And that that led him to to offer to act as counsel for Mr. Pentia and took him, of course, as we know, and witnessed in person to the Supreme Court. And I also really liked when he was talking about that experience, him talking about the challenges kind of, of, of arguing in front of the Supreme Court and you're trying to stay on message and trying to get your, your points across while the the justices, the nine of them, the very intimidating panel up there Mm. are questioning you and testing you as they need to do and are supposed to do. Um, And how, as he explained, like the point is to, to try to keep bringing them back to 
the points that you're trying to make and trying to get all your arguments in. And we were all very impressed with his ability to do that. We were, we were. And this was such a great example, this case of how there's that tension between looking at the kind of granular detail of the particular case but understanding the experience in a wider context. Cases mm-hmm. only get brought to the Supreme Court of Canada if they can be shown to be issues of public importance. And so although the case was decided on the basis of what happened to Mr. Pintia, it was also being put in a context, and this was clear from some of the justices' questioning, of a much broader phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And how is it that courts can more effectively talk to self-represented litigants in a way that enable them to participate effectively? I think that one of the things that Colin was trying to do and the interveners were trying to do in their arguments was to have the justices look more systemically at the issue of how much assistance could be offered to self-represented litigants. Mr. Pintia was an example of somebody who really, other than the fact he was standing in court, wasn't really being given a kick at the can in the sense that he wasn't fully able to participate for a whole range of different reasons. And just what kind of assistance needs to be given to people to create some kind of meaningful opportunity. Many of the people who come to the project talk about the fact that access to justice can't just mean physical access. It Mm -hmm. has to mean meaningful access so they can participate in a way that is as effective as possible. And I think that what Colin Feesby and the others managed to do at the Supreme Court of Canada that day was to really make this a clearly systemic issue that we have to look at for cases like Mr. Pintia, but many, many other kinds of cases also. In related news, since the Supreme Court Pintia decision last April, a number of courts have applied the decision to rule that an SRL is entitled to more judicial assistance in some circumstances. Each decision helps to clarify the impact, and of course the limitations, of the Pintia decision. Responding to requests from SRLs, an SRLP has just written a short summary of the Pintia case and decision for self-represented litigants to take and present in court, which refers to some of these other cases. Look under SRL resources on our website for the Pintia summary. In other news... For the past two weeks, many people in Ontario have been transfixed by the spectacle of a self-represented litigant in criminal court accused of murder cross-examining the father of his alleged victim. Dellen Millard did not qualify for legal aid because he has assets in the form of an inheritance. However, he cannot access these assets to pay for a lawyer because they have been frozen as a result of the murder charge. In conducting his own defense, Millard has, understandably, discomfited the public and drawn their attention to the self-representation issue. Julie writes in the Globe and Mail about how the Millard case and rising rates of self-representation in criminal courts is just the tip of the iceberg compared with the self-representation and access to justice crisis in family and civil court. Lastly, One of NSRLP's partners, the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal System at the University of Denver, has just announced a new research project called Think Like a Client, with AVO, an online legal services platform. The study will analyze AVO's evaluation data, 800,000 client reviews, on American lawyers to determine what clients want and need. AVO's platform is providing U.S. legal consumers with important information about individual lawyers and the services they provide. Is it time for a Canadian platform that offers the same type of information for people looking to buy legal services? 
As always, links related to these stories can be found on the Jumping Off the Ivory Tower webpage at representingyourselfcanada.com slash podcast. In next week's episode, I'm speaking with Brady Donahue, who is a lawyer and a former student at the University of Windsor on a topic that is getting a lot of press at the moment. It's called Tackling Campus Rape Culture. 